The year is 160 AD. A man by the name of Polycarp was a local church leader. He lived in a, a city called Smyrna. It's in Rome. And what he noticed is what maybe many of us might start to notice is his country began deteriorating and deteriorating and deteriorating. And it wasn't so much from a prosperous stand of view. In fact, the culture and the economy was increasing and getting better and better and better. But the, the transparency was becoming much more known. It was becoming much more visible. To see the true state of the souls of the people inside of Smyrna was getting more and more and more obvious. The government was turning against the church, and it was turning against the church in a more overt and in a cruel, destructive way. It was decision day. Man Polycarp, he received the summons from the city that said, you are to report to the Roman temple known as Dea Roma, the goddess of the Roman people, that they, they built this temple. Smyrna, of all cities, earned the right to erect a temple that worship could be had, worship could take place, not to, not to a real God, not, not to the God, not to the Alpha and to the Omega, but to the idea of the Roman God, the God of Rome. And so you would show up after receiving the summons, you would walk into the temple and you would smell incense, you would smell it burning, you would see the godhead of the Roman emperor, at this point it was Domitian. You would see like this head, this sculpture sitting right up front and all you had to do was walk up and pinch a small amount of incense and burn it in worship towards the Roman emperor. And if you did... There was already a guard standing right there with your certificate that he would hand you your certificate. You would walk out and that one small act, those, those few, few moments would give you the right to worship however you wanted for the other 364 days. That small certificate would give you the ability to work however you saw fit and you would receive security. You would receive rights. You would receive protection. You would receive everything that the Roman government stands for because when you pinched that incense, what you said to everybody is, I am allegiant to Rome first. So it was decision day. Polycarp, local church leader, who's actually the bishop, one of the few people still alive that knew one of the apostles of Jesus, and he received his summons. Can you imagine the wrestling that took place inside of his head? I lead this church, this group of people who I love. I, I lead my family, my kids, my grandkids. I carry the weight of responsibility, the weight of leadership. All eyes are looking to me to see what I will do today. Will I do it? Should I do it? Should I just burn the incense and burn it to the Roman emperor so that my family can eat? Do I do it so that I can work? Do I do it so that I can live? Do I do it so that, that I can avoid persecution just once because Polycarp, just like his family, just like believers in 160 AD, were some of the most poor people alive? This is Smyrna. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, sweet smelling. It was so prosperous, so powerful. But if you chose to be a Christian, if you chose to be a leader in the Christian movement, if you chose to be a disciple, you gave it all up. It cost you everything. The word used to describe those people in that time who were Jesus followers was abject poverty. And it wasn't just due to material or worldly wealth. 
but also due to how they were treated and many of them how they were executed. Polycarp knew that his decision to pinch the incense and burn it would have significant lasting impacts, but he also knew his decision not to would be just the same. This is what was on Polycarp's mind, the local theater, the amphitheater in, in uh, Smyrna. And what they would do is they would bring the atheists, is what they called them. They called the Jesus followers atheists because they denied the belief that all of the Roman and Greek gods existed. They said there's only one God. And so the people, the culture, called them atheists. So they would, they would drag these atheists down into the theater, and then this next picture is what one of the ways that they would execute those that were following Jesus. They'd be given one final opportunity, renounce Jesus. Repent and turn from your ways of following him. Acknowledge the wealth and the fortune of Caesar, and your life will be spared. And many of them said no. Put yourself in Polycarp's shoes. You walk into the temple. You smell the incense. You see the Godhead, the sculpture that's erected, and all you must do is pinch the incense and burn it. What do you do? What do you do? Smyrna is one of the most fascinating cities that I've ever studied. We're in the middle of a series right now called Jesus People, as I'm sure you've gathered, and we're looking at seven different letters that Jesus instructed the Apostle Paul to write to the different churches. And Smyrna actually holds a really powerful and a really special place in John's heart, the Apostle John, because John actually was a pastor in Smyrna. Isn't that crazy? The words that we're about to read here that Jesus instructed John to write to the church, it starts with to the elders, to the leaders, and it's like you can imagine John is writing this to Polycarp, to his buddy, to, to the one that he mentored, to the one that he raised up, to the one he identified and poured into and developed. Now, John is in exile on the island of Patmos, probably for the same reason that other Christians all around the Roman Empire are facing persecution. John is on the island, and he's writing these letters because Jesus shows up in a vision, and he says, this is what I want you to say to Smyrna, but I want you to have an idea of the city, of the surrounding of Smyrna before you hear the words that Jesus said to them. So here's a couple pictures of what Smyrna looked like. I mean, they were known for their architecture. They had this golden street that was uh, in existence in the city. There were temples all along the street for, for all the different Greek gods. One was Aphrodite and one was Zeus and one, I mean, fill in the blank. There are all these different Greek gods, but you know what's funny is the tide of the culture of worship changed in Smyrna. It changed. It evolved. They were, they were known for having such a wealthy, powerful city full of worship to all these Greek gods, but people stopped giving their devotion to the Greek gods, and so they looked for something else to give their worship and to give their devotion. And so they moved from worshiping these gods of myth and legend, and then they transitioned to worshiping dead emperors, former emperors that were in existence. Nero would be one of them. They began worshiping these dead emperors that were no longer there, emperors of Rome, but then that got old, so they transitioned again. Hey, now let's worship living emperors. Domitian was one of the first, we've talked about this, who stepped in and demanded worship. You are to call me Lord of Lords. No other emperor had demanded that of his people in Rome's history at this point, but here's Domitian now claiming, I am superior. I am supreme. 
So the culture then adapts again, and it's not just, okay, worship the emperor, but now it becomes worship the emperor or else. Worship the emperor or else sacrifice your ability to work, sacrifice your wealth, sacrifice your protection, sacrifice your family, and eventually sacrifice your very lives. This was the culture that existed for Christians in Smyrna. And John was familiar with it, but more importantly, Jesus was familiar with it. Imagine what it must have felt like to be a Christian in that city at that point. Fear, trembling. I mean, imagine you're hungry, you're homeless, you're taken advantage of. You can't work, you can't earn, you can't accumulate, but you can give it, you can trade it in an instant by one simple act, and yet so many wouldn't do it. But can you imagine over time, the weight that that becomes, the burden that you begin carrying, watching your kids, watching your family, watching your spouse, watching your friends, watching your neighborhood be persecuted and persecuted and persecuted. Jesus has these words to write to the church in Smyrna. It says this, Revelation 2, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna could also be substituted as the leader. Think Polycarp. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. You hear? Feel the, the challenge here from Jesus, don't you? You have an emperor that is wreaking havoc, who's just going nuts on the people who call themselves Jesus' follower. He's saying, I am the first and I am the last. And Jesus reminds his church, hey, just, just so we're clear, I'm the first and the last, who died and came to life again. They didn't just kill me. I gave up my life, and my life was given back to me. I defeated the thing that the enemy is using against you, the very thing called death. I beat it. My people aren't held to that because I'm not held to that. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are, say it with me, rich. What? Does that make any sense? I mean, serious question. How would you feel if you're a Christian in Smyrna and the words from your Savior say you are rich? What's that feel like? I'd be tempted to feel like you don't understand what it's like to be me. I'd be tempted to feel like you... It, you're, you're too far away. You're too distant. You don't, you, don't, you don't get it. But Jesus keeps writing, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. I know about the people, your own family, your own friends, your own neighbors, who say they're with you but turn against you. I, I know that. I know them. But they're a synagogue of Satan. Those are some harsh words. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Let's keep reading. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. A lot of scholars I, I read on this one even say it, it wasn't necessarily like 10 days, like maybe we would see 10 days, but sometimes it was used in a, as an expression um, for a short time. Today we might say for a minute, 
be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt. How much? At all. By the second death. This is the word that Jesus commanded John to write to the people that both of them loved. I see you. I hear you. I feel your pain. I've walked your lives. And I'm with you. And you're going to suffer. Because there's always a significant cost of following Jesus. You know, it's funny, of all the seven letters that we're studying, this is letter number two, right? Some of you are like, holy smokes, this is only letter two? I don't know if I want to come back for three through seven. But it What's so funny is every letter there, Jesus talks or commands or speaks something to the churches, but then usually has some sort of reprimand, some sort of challenge, some sort of turn your ways, repent, stop doing this. For the church of Smyrna, it's only encouragement. It's only encouragement. Jesus looks at him and he says, you're living your life like me. And I want you to know, I'm with you. They were suffering. And what's funny, again, it's not because they necessarily chose to be poor, but they chose to be Jesus people. Therefore, the reaction or the result was poverty. They didn't choose the life, but they chose life, and therefore, their earthly lives followed. As I was preparing this or thinking about this, even just for today, What do we learn? What can we learn as the church that exists in the United States of America in 2021, particularly here in Grand Rapids or for wherever you're watching right now, what can we learn from the church in Smyrna? And I'll say it again. Following Jesus always costs something significant. Following Jesus always costs something significant. You know what's funny about our culture, what's funny about our world, and even what's funny about today is this. Many of us don't feel that. You, you might not feel that. I mean, what, what has following Jesus cost you? As I think back, you know, on my life, or I look at when, when I first gave my life to the Lord, uh, it came with a set of instructions that I was not anticipating, nor did I want. Uh, I grew up, my dad's a pastor, so I, I grew up in the local church. I was there all the time. And something that maybe you don't know about pastor's kids is like, we feel like we're under a magnifying glass all the time, nonstop. I mean, just, and, and I have like 52 different sets of grandparents all growing up and like 110 different sets of parents, which is just horrible as a pastor's kid. You never feel safe, right? Church is like, hey, do you want to multiply your parents and grandparents all the same? Nope, nope, I don't. I really don't. I'd rather stay at home. I'd rather go somewhere else. So growing up as a pastor's kid, here's the other side that I saw about church or about ministry as pastors, actually. It's not a great gig. Can I just say that? The world's really hard on pastors. Church people are really hard on pastors. 
So I grew up most of my life watching, getting to see behind the scenes, behind the curtain, my dad just get, man, destroyed, attacked, accused. I, I grew up with that so much to the point that I went, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want anything to do with this at all. I can't wait to start my life and to move out and to be gone and to no longer be known by my last name, but my first name. That, that was like my mantra, particularly towards high school. I get to college, I end up at a conference, I give my life to the Lord, um, and what I felt like he said to me was, David, look out. So I looked out. There were 45,000 people at this conference. It was amazing. College students who were studying and worshiping and, and praying together and serving and giving. I mean, it was like, it was one of the best depictions of the church I'd ever seen, even to date. And I felt like God said this to me, put this on my heart. He said, this is what I'm calling you to, my church. And I went, oh, come on. That was part of the deal. Like, I give my life to you with one tiny little asterisk that says, I'll do anything, say anything, give anything, go anywhere. I'll, I'll do it all. Just don't make me do what my dad did. And for me, I felt like God said, this is what I want you to do. For me, that was a cost. There was a challenge between my life and his life. For some of you, it might be, hey, I'm calling you to step into business, and you go, ugh. For some of you, it's teaching. Some of you, it's the medical field. Some of you, it's government, and we all feel it for you. All of us have a different calling that God places on our lives, but the, <laughs> the same thing that connects all of them is this. It's going to cost you something, and something significant. Not just with your career. It could cost you family. It could cost you relationships. It could cost you wealth. It could cost you control. It could cost you your health. It could cost you your safety. It could cost you your rights. Following Jesus has a significant cost that the church in Smyrna understood. And it's one that I hope we can, even by unpacking this just a little bit today, that we can understand following Jesus isn't just receiving a gift that we put in our pocket and we live our lives the way we want. Following Jesus means accepting the gift that God gave us. And by accepting means we step into a life that is not our own. That we now become obedient to the person of Jesus to do what he calls us to do, especially when we don't want to. It's what, what separates Jesus followers from Jesus fans is obedience. Obedience, just as Jesus says, even to the point of death. I want to ask you this. What has Jesus, what has following Jesus cost you? I hope you don't say nothing. Because here's what that likely means. You're probably not following him. If following Jesus has cost you nothing, reevaluate your following. Following Jesus for the church in Smyrna cost them everything. There was no point to even ask that question. It was implied. Everybody knew. What does it cost us today? In our world? 
in our country, with, with people. As we see, even politics, both sides. Sin everywhere. Countries, regimes, I mean, you name it. Things are escalating. And maybe some of the freedoms or, or things that we've appreciated for decades or centuries, maybe, maybe the tide is turning for the church around the world. It's already turned in different parts, but for us, I mean, I just want to, this isn't meant to scare, this isn't meant to freak out, this, is, this isn't meant to do anything other than say, hey, can we be known as a church that follows Jesus with everything? Sometimes I worry about our world. Do you? Or do you sit back, you know, and just kind of kick your feet up and go, hey, we'll see how this thing ends. <laughs> Sometimes I worry. I look at people. I look at, I look at my son, who's two. I'm going, how different is the world going to be in 25 years when you step into it? And hopefully before that, out of our house. But what's that going to look like? What's the world going to be like for him? What's the world going to be like for your kids? For your grandkids, for your great-grandkids? What's, what's the world going to be like? Here's what I hope. I hope that all of them will say, Jesus is my Lord, and that's the only thing that matters. Because it's the only thing that matters. What does following Jesus cost you? Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's family, maybe it's reputation, maybe it's your plan. What does following Jesus cost you? If you were a Christian in Smyrna, following Jesus cost you everything. Imagine, just a couple of these things, imagine living totally in fear for you and your family. Imagine living hungry for food and for work. Imagine living vulnerable, unsafe, constantly in danger. Imagine living tired from a sheer lack of nutrition or you just can't sleep at night. Imagine being alone. People you trusted, people you loved turned on you for nothing else than your faith and belief in Jesus. And in his goodness, Jesus instructs the Apostle John, a man who knew these people and knew the community so well, to write these words. And I'm going to read it again. This is verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know it. I feel it. I understand it. I've lived it. Yet you are rich. One of the most important things I think we can hear today is kingdom riches and worldly riches have no correlation. They don't feed each other. They don't go hand in hand. In fact, oftentimes riches, worldly riches are an obstacle to kingdom riches. The church in Smyrna understood that. Do we? I mean, can you imagine hearing this? <laughs> Rich, are you kidding me, Jesus? Look at our lives. Look at our reality. Look at what this means to follow you. And yet here's what Jesus reminds them. They are rich in faith. 
They are rich in courage. They are rich in good deeds. They are rich in their love for one another, their love for their Savior, their grace and mercy and forgiveness in their representation of Jesus to their persecutors. They are rich in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, hang in there. Hang in there. Because I'm with you. I want to go back to the story of Polycarp. Polycarp's a true story. Uh, it's not a myth or it's not a legend. Polycarp is it's a true story. Here's what happens. Polycarp is 86 years old, and he understands that uh, the leaders, the Roman leaders, the police, the government, etc., they're after him. They're after him. They know he's the bishop. They know he's the leader of the church and the leader of the movement. And if they can get him, think about all the others that they can get. So Polycarp, under compulsion from his friends, ends up leaving the city. He doesn't flee. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide but he listens. And so he heads out of the city into the country. And in his time in the country, it says three days before he was arrested, he dreamt that his pillow was on fire. And he told his friends, I'm going to be burned alive. You know what Polycarp did with his time? He prayed for every church. And then he prayed for every person. Not just in the church, but his persecutors but those in the government, for his emperor, for those that wanted to kill him. He spent his time day and night praying and praying and praying and pleading for the souls of people who wanted to destroy him. So here's what happens. The persecutors catch up. They showed up with weapons to arrest him, and when they found him, he was lying down in an upper room. He could have escaped, but he didn't. In fact, he comes down, this is just so comical to me. He comes down in sound mind and he says, you're here for me, aren't you? And they go, yes. And he goes, great, let me call some food and some water for you. And he feeds them. And he says, could I have one more hour to spend in prayer? And they say, sure. A lot of accounts say they almost, they felt bad that they showed up with weapons to, to come after a man who, who was no threat to them at all. So Polycarp feeds them. He asks for one hour. And I just love this. He takes two. <laughs> he prays for them. He prays for his family. He prays for his church. And then he comes down and he says, I'm not hiding from you. God's will be done. Let's go. And they put him on a donkey and they walked him into the city and they walked him into the amphitheater, into, into the scene that you saw earlier. And this is the dialogue that happens between him and the proconsul. The proconsul, this, this Roman leader says, swear by the fortune of Caesar, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp's response is this, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Wow. Here's the proconsul's response. I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you don't repent. Polycarp's response, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. And Polycarp says this, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour. 
and then it's extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. What message did that communicate to his family? What message did that communicate to his church? Can I say maybe most important of all, what did that communicate to people who didn't know Jesus? They looked and they said, following him is worth everything. So that's what they did. They gathered wood, they gathered sticks, they started building a fire, they put him on top of it, they, they held him there. And you know what? There's stories like this in the Bible. His body didn't burn. So funny to me. They said it, it was like baking bread. There was like a sweet smell and his, his skin seemed to like be golden until one of the Roman guards comes and he stabs him with a spear and it says a dove flew out. Do you know what his legacy is? His legacy is the prayer that he prayed right before. And it goes like this. Oh Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers in every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved son, to you with him through the Holy Ghost. Be glory both now and forever. Amen. Can I tell you something? Polycarp died a very rich man. It was because of his obedience. Philippians 2 verse 8 says this about Jesus and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus set the example. Polycarp just followed it. So for us to follow the same example, two simple questions. One is this, are you willing to be obedient to whatever Jesus calls you to right now? This year, for this community, for your family, for your workplace, for those that are entrusted to your care, are you willing to be obedient to what Jesus calls you to? And the second one goes like this, what do you need to give up then? How do you start? believe it's one of the best times ever in our country right now to be alive, to be a Jesus follower. Because the weight of our words are going to be increasingly important because the world is watching, watching how we treat people, watching how we love people, watching what we care about, watching what we accumulate. They're watching every part of us. Let's give them something to watch.
and let's do it in obedience to our heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. Father, we come before you right now as your church. Father, you laid down your very life for ours. You gave it up so that that when we die, we don't die, but we spend eternity with you in heaven. Father, you even remind the church in Smyrna, just like you do us today, we have nothing to fear of death. You've already beat it. You've already conquered it. So Father, in in the world that we're in right now, 2021, as we have a perspective and a vision for your kingdom, I pray that you would raise up followers of you, Jesus people in this church right now, people who are willing to lay down everything for you to lay down money, to lay down jobs, to lay down sin in relationships, things that that we're pursuing that are not of you. I pray, Father, that our decisions that are before us right now, we would lay those before you, the stirrings and speakings of your Holy Spirit to our heart. I pray for this group, this room right now, those watching online, that they might be obedient to the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Father, we are your church. You call us your bride. We know it's not your intent for us to suffer. But Father, we pray that in in whatever way, whatever lies before us, whatever you call us to, we pray that we would be obedient to you because we know you love us. We know you're at work. We know you could use our lives to make an eternal impact in the lives of others. And we want you to hear today, Father, that we will be obedient to what you call us to. We love you. And everybody said together, amen.